Gilman Scholars, this is your captain speaking. Get ready for takeoff. Hello, everyone. I hope this new episode finds you well. And I know that sounded a bit cheesy, but I do sincerely hope that you are listening to this episode in good spirits and in good health. As of September 15th, it is officially Hispanic Heritage Month, and we appreciate your patience for this long-awaited episode. I have previous Gilman alumni ambassador and poet, Hector Heike, joining me today to talk all things about his exchange to his current work at FEMA. But before jumping in, please make sure you have left a review and are subscribed to the podcast, as well as following us on all of our social media. As the Gilman program continues to celebrate 20 years of equity, diversity, and accessibility in study abroad, following us on social media is the best way to stay up to date about future events and new episodes. Last and certainly not least, I do want to give Hector a chance to introduce himself. So please, Hector, take it away. Hi, pleasure to be here. Definitely an honor to always be representing the Gilman Scholarship. It's a scholarship that definitely changed my life for the better and both professionally, personally, and spiritually. So I'm really looking forward to talk about this and any other topics related to Hispanic Heritage Month and emergency management. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the kind word. Honestly, I'm, I'm smiling so big that it's hurting my, my cheeks a little bit. Um, and I really just do appreciate <laughs> you taking the time to sit down and lend some of your knowledge and life experience to us and our listeners for a for what appears to be a very um, busy time in your field of work. Oh, yeah. Um, hurricane season is always busy in FEMA. Very unpredictable sometimes because, you know, a storm can develop in three days, kind of like Hurricane Ida did. It was more or less in the Caribbean by Monday, Tuesday. And then it was basically by Thursday, right, that the National Hurricane Center was aware that it would become a major category three hurricane impact in Louisiana. So it was a very accelerated preparedness and response effort from part of both local emergency management agencies and on the federal level as well. That does sound awfully intense. And I'm really excited to learn more about how you support these emergency efforts and what exactly FEMA does for those listeners who aren't sure about what exactly it entails. But, you know, first and foremost, again, just Happy Hispanic Heritage Month, and I'm so excited to have you on to talk again about all things your heritage, your exchange, and the work that you currently do. But outside of those topics, please tell listeners a little bit about yourself. I actually started in emergency management after Hurricane Maria. Um, before that, I used to dedicate myself to writing poetry and studying poetry, specifically Caribbean, Puerto Rican, and Latin American poetry. Um, it's part of the reason I took the Gilman Scholarship to Spain, because I wanted to study under the wing of this amazing national award-winning author from Spain. And I, the Gilman Scholarship actually gave me the chance, right, to study with him a whole semester. Um, but yeah, I've basically been in emergency management for four years since Hurricane Maria. And since then, I've been focusing more on what we call in this field um, crisis communications, mm -hmm. which is the part of emergency management that deals with Pardon the redundancy, communications. <laughs> uh, but additional to that, it's mainly about getting the right information to the right people at the right time so they can make the right decision in terms of getting ready, 
knowing what to expect, mm -hmm. knowing what their priorities should be, and knowing what potential dangers or threats they might be facing upon a potential emergency or disaster or natural event. Yeah, it also sounds like you're providing some, dare I say, life and death situ situational critical information. But as we've said already, and if it's not clear or obvious by this point, we really wanted this episode to celebrate and honor the Gilman scholars and alumni of Hispanic heritage, like yourself, because we know that highlighting your story will, without a doubt, inspire future scholars who want to hear your story and then follow in your footsteps. But I want to know, what was your inspiration or main motivation to apply for the Gilman Scholarship? Oof. There were a lot. Um, I think my main motivation was as, as a young writer, I was looking for inspiration. And inspiration for me in that time in college came from many different sources, um, especially art, mm -hmm. uh, adventures, news, uh, cultural experiences, and people too. As I love meeting people. I love socializing. <laughs> I love getting to know people and letting people get to know me as well, because I feel like I learned so much from, from these exchanges. You're quite the extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was one reason. And the other reason, which I think I mentioned, was this uh, professor over there in Granada, the University of Granada, that just wanting to be able to study with him, just to learn from him and maybe work under his wing in the future was something that greatly inspired me to try and study abroad. Because my goal back then was to make education more accessible in Puerto Rico upon returning. That was the promise I made the Gilman Scholarship in exchange of the sponsorship for the exchange program. I used to work mm -hmm. as a teaching assistant and tutor in the Center for University Access in Puerto Rico. And there were just a lot of students there um, who faced daily things that I never knew that many public school students in Puerto Rico weren't facing things like hunger, things like um, being incarcerated despite being 12 years old. And those kids really looked up to me. And as their teacher, I really wanted to show them, you know, that one can study abroad, even if you don't have the money to do it. And that's why programs like the Gilman Scholarship exist. We always hope that we are able to send students abroad, have them come back, and with the requirement of the follow-on service project, which is what I believe you're touching upon here, and we hope that studying abroad becomes a fuller cycle, um, especially in those communities that, for various reasons, have limited access to those opportunities. You elected to study abroad in Spain, and you were um, born in Puerto Rico. What were some of the key differences that you were anticipating for your exchange in, in Spain and in contrast to what your upbringing was like in Puerto Rico? The weather mainly, um, it had me really nervous. Uh, as someone from the Caribbean, I've never seen snow until I traveled abroad to study in Spain. I know it sounds super uh, funny, you know, but um, I've never been used to, yeah, I've never been used to winter until I moved to DC. So it definitely caught me off guard arriving there, plain peak of winter in February and just maybe having like one coat and a sweater that I basically carried along with me everywhere I would go. <laughs> so I had to kind of like restock on that over there. And aside from that, in the term of cultural differences, I did think before going to Spain that the culture there would be more or less 
uptight and not as friendly as Caribbean Puerto Rican people tend to be. Um, people in Puerto Rico are very recognized for being very um, hospitable and very friendly, very kind, the best hosts. We're always asking if you ate, if you're hungry. But yeah, basically I learned that we're not that different from, we are very different from Spaniards in a lot of ways. But when it comes to, to being a welcoming host and being very socially active and being very friendly to people that are visiting your country, I think we have a very common, a lot of common ground there. I love that hospitality holds no geographic bounds. <laughs> and now, oftentimes the terms Hispanic, Latino, Latinx are used interchangeably, which from my limited knowledge, depending on the audience or the individual, may not be the most accurate descriptor. So with your knowledge, do you, are you comfortable sort of breaking down most classifications for us and the origins of their use and maybe even use um, Spain and Puerto Rico as comparative examples? Um, I think this time of year is always very important to talk about these things, right? Because if we don't talk about it, we're not going to learn how to differentiate, right? Between different cultures and mm -hmm. different idiosyncrasies, right? So basically, um, Latinx, which has been a very controversial word <laughs> this year, is the gender neutral version of Latino. And the X is supposed to stand for an O, an A, or an E for those who don't identify with the gender. So long story short, the X a lot of times in different words is meant to um, provide an inclusive gender neutral perspective on the use and employment of the language. Now, um, what is Latino and what is Hispanic? Those are two different things, but they're not mutually exclusive. Um, so by this, I mean that you can be Hispanic and Latino. Um, but just because you're Latino doesn't mean you're necessarily Hispanic. Um, and I hear it gets a little confusing, right? Because uh, Hispanic people are people that uh, have a descendancy um, from Spanish-speaking countries, which is, includes Spain, Mexico, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Cuba, uh, Argentina, you name it. All these countries are Venezuela, people. Exactly. Yeah, Venezuela as well. These people, a majority of people, right? Because we don't want to exclude other people that don't identify as Hispanic. Um, but sure. long story short, many people in the countries aforementioned identify themselves as Hispanics because mm -hmm. they are they form part of what is considered to be Hispanic culture. And Hispanic culture is very varied, right? Because Hispanic culture encompasses tons of different backgrounds, ethnicities, and historical backgrounds and contexts as well. So, but it mainly centers around the use of Spanish as a language. One of the reasons, um, you can't use Hispanic for every person in Central America and Latin America is because not everyone in Central and Latin America um, comes from a Hispanic background and culture. In other words, not everyone in Latin America speaks Spanish either, right? So in the case of Puerto Rico and Spain, based on your definitions, in both countries, Spanish is the main language that is spoken. Well, Spain being a country and Yes. now being um, a territory of the United States. So in that case, people who are born and raised in Spain and born and raised in Puerto Rico, 
they are what they classified as Hispanic, most definitely because of that language commonality. Yes. Yes. But if you don't classify yourself on as someone who comes from a Hispanic culture mm -hmm. and someone who doesn't use um Hispanic language, right? Mm -hmm. Um that would make you if you come from South America or Central America, mm -hmm. that would make you Latino then. And these countries are called Latin America, right? Because most of the languages spoken in all of these countries in Central and South America uh, are languages that come from the Latin language originally used by the Romans. So called the Romans languages. And the Romans languages, they're all descendant from the Latin language employed by the Romans. So this includes Portuguese, which is spoken in Brazil. I was thinking Portuguese in Brazil. In Brazil. Yes. Yeah, and it also includes French, which is spoken in Haiti, San Martin, and these people wouldn't necessarily classify themselves as Latino. Um, and it's very interesting because the word Latino has a very long history. Um, before, in medieval times and before medieval times, uh, Latinos was what Germanic and, and people from England and other areas of the world would call Romance-speaking people. So if you spoke Portuguese, Italian, or French, people that weren't from those areas in Europe would refer to you as a Latino. And, but these days, the word Latino um, has a whole new meaning. And it's mostly used to refer to Latin Americans more than anything. Um, but when you talk about it in, for example, let's say in a pop music context, context you're going to see that in English and in Spanish, we use the word Latino to classify mm -hmm. music that uh, is usually in Spanish as well. Um, but it's very important to remind ourselves as well that Latino is more than Spanish. Um, and Latino encompasses even more than Hispanic culture. But at the same time, identity politics are very liquid and always changing. Educating oneself and taking advantage of opportunities to learn are really critical components to, I think, showing support for in these month-long celebrations of various groups of people. And, you know, not to mention that understanding the difference in history behind the terms Hispanic, Latino, Latinx are very, very essential to continuing to acknowledge the diversity of these groups of people and the regions that they come from. So just, Hector, thank you is what I'm trying to say. Thank you for your willingness and eagerness to share and educate us and our audience. Yeah, no worries. That, I love helping out in these things because, as I mentioned earlier, um, we have to talk about it in order to have an idea about it and understand. Now, several years after your exchange, you have found yourself working at FEMA. And for our listeners who are not familiar with what FEMA is, could you tell us about what the organization does and what does your specific work entail and how does it, you know, overall find itself supporting the public affairs department at large at FEMA? I think there's a major misconception of FEMA um, across the United States. Um, I think, of course, FEMA's vision is most definitely to help people before, during and after disasters. It is the Federal Emergency Management Agency. However, FEMA it's not an agency composed of first responders. It's an agency that mostly coordinates first responders and federal assets to support local emergency response capabilities and state emergency response capabilities. 
Um, so basically what FEMA does is try to communicate always with every state and every local government to see how we can better support them, be it through funding, through coordinating different response personnel from other states. And what it's really doing is, you know, uh, making, for example, the New Jersey Task Force One composed of very elite firefighters and sending them down to Louisiana to help. That's actually true. A lot of people from New Jersey, Idaho, firefighters from a lot of the country, thanks to FEMA, were already pre-positioned in Louisiana before the hurricane impacted. And this was done, like I'm telling you, as soon as the forecast, the forecast said on Friday morning that a hurricane is going to come by Sunday, these people were already there. I mean, luck favors are prepared, and, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's just one of the many things that FEMA does. Um, FEMA also helps a lot with um, assisting survivors, natural disaster survivors with their recovery process as well. Yeah. So how does my job fit into all of this? Yes. I'd love to know. Well, when you're dealing with crisis communications at the federal level, it's mostly about amplifying uh, messaging from local officials and amplifying uh, the share of resources through mm -hmm. all available digital channels as possible. So well, a lot of things we try to do in FEMA is make sure that besides promoting and making sure that survivors know how to apply for FEMA and why they should apply for FEMA. We want to make sure that they know what their governor is saying, what their mayor is saying, uh, the different resources that are available on the ground for them from different nonprofit organizations. Um, just as well, before a hurricane, you know, if someone is submitting an evacuation order, it's very important that we also emphasize how important it is to follow evacuation orders from officials. We do a lot of things. Um, I think our messaging mainly uh, has three categories. I would say it's first preparedness. We, um, FEMA's communications assets and communications personnel main focus a lot of time, most of the year, what we call emergency management blue sky days. It's when no emergency is happening. Long story short, these blue sky days, we try to promote a culture of preparedness in the United States. Uh, FEMA has a lot of resources to help people get prepared for any type of natural disaster, be it wildfire, tornadoes, flooding. How do you find that you're actually able to serve and help your community through your work at FEMA? Well, it feels really good to, to handle the crisis communications from a bilingual perspective. Because I think that there is definitely a lack of safety, preparedness, and response information available in Spanish, especially when it comes to weather threats and hazards that could impact a lot of, a lot of Latino communities. And then not, not only that, not only do they, does the Hispanic community in the United States have a lack of information available to them concerning disaster preparedness and emergency preparedness, but they also have a lack of resources in terms of recovery resources and information available once a disaster occurs or happens, right? So putting this information out there in Spanish mm -hmm. and making sure that this information gets out there and is distributed and, and complying with the whole um, equity part of disaster and emergency management uh, really makes me feel very fulfilled. 
it actually has never occurred to me how important language accessibility within emergency management resources and communication is. And again, that really speaks to my privilege as a native English speaker. But with the language diversity of the United States, I mean, it couldn't make more sense. I am grateful, though, that people like you exist to bridge that gap so that everyone has the means to understand where to find help when disaster strikes. Definitely, definitely. And as I mentioned earlier, it's really all about getting the right information to the right people at the right time. <laughs> of course. Now, are there any other ways for individuals uh, and listeners of our podcast to get involved in how, like, how would we go about using FEMA's resources to help prepare ourselves for emergencies in the future? Yes. As I mentioned earlier, ready.gov. You can go to that yes. website and okay. look for the specific disasters that you are most concerned about mm -hmm. and see a wide range of preparedness tips, not only for you, but that can also be useful for your family, elder family, siblings, people with accessibility and functions needs. And you have all that information available in Spanish as well. And if I'm not mistaken, it's available in more mm -hmm. languages as well. And now, did you have any last advice for fellow Hispanic, Latino, Latinx students uh, um, who were interested in studying abroad? So my recommendation to everyone is to not be afraid to aim high because if they think they can achieve it, they most definitely can. And if they want to achieve it, they most definitely can. I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, when, what a beautiful way to end this episode. But before I officially let you go, I must ask, all of my guests this question to conclude. Hector, I would love to know, do you have a dream, a travel destination or international experience that you'd want to have in the future? Oof. Well, lately, yeah, but actually, let me tell you, I've been thinking about one place a lot lately. Yeah, it's in Central America. It's Costa Rica. Is there any way for our listeners to get in contact with you after this episode airs if they want to learn more about either your poetry, your exchange in Spain, or even your work at FEMA? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the best way to contact me would be through my email. It is um, hectorjuanhaken at gmail.com. Thank you so much for taking the time while you're helping others to help our audience learn a bit more about your work and provide some insight into what Hispanic Heritage Month means and what that represents for so many people. It really means a lot. And I hope our listeners have enjoyed our September slash October episode and they can stay tuned for our next one dropping in November. Till next time. <laughs>